The 29th Regiment in Connecticut made history. In 1864, during the Civil War, it was the state's first volunteer infantry regiment of color. More than a 1,000 men served in that unit. The personal stories of some of those soldiers will be shared this November at the New Haven Museum by John Mills. He's an independent scholar and president of the Alex Breen Corporation, a Connecticut-based nonprofit group that researches the lives of Americans who were enslaved. And he joins me now in the studio. Mr. Mills, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invite. This is awesome. Glad you're here. So the 29th Regiment, Mm -hmm. uh, I understand, was created after Congress passed the Militia Act of 1862. That's right. Could you tell us about the act, and how did that change the U.S. military at that time? Well, at the time, the prior Militia Act did not allow for African Americans to join the Army. That Militia Act of 1862 changed that so that now African Americans have the ability uh, to join any armed forces. And of course, from our country's perspective, it allowed the various states to then meet their quotas. You know, the request for troops was being sent out, and states like Connecticut were trying to figure out, how do we do this? So so was it a a quota-based sort of reason for passing this act and allowing regiments of color to be established? We needed more men, so we need to open this up? Well, yeah, the the Emancipation Proclamation that had occurred just prior, the idea from the Emancipation Proclamation was a military-type tactic. The um, southern states, we can threaten them with, you seceded, and if you stay in that position, we're going to then say that you're enslaved or now free. That was more like a tactical thing, whereas the Militia Act was like, well, wait a minute, it's not just the African-Americans of the southern states and of the states that seceded. We need to open this up to make sure that any African-American of any state, even here in the North, can can now participate in helping us win this conflict. And so the, the act in 1862 allowed for that. But yes, it also was a benefit to now increase the size of our forces in the North. So we know about the 29th Regiment in Connecticut. Were there many other regiments of color created after this act? Yeah, there were actually others that occurred prior to Connecticut. Massachusetts had the 54th and the 55th. The, both of those were colored volunteer infantry regiments. So it, it wasn't just Connecticut. There are many, many other states. But Connecticut was one of the early states to say, yeah, this is how we're going to meet the request for additional troops. Let's create a colored regiment. Is that why men from other states, other territories came to Connecticut? I understand about 1,600 men came to Connecticut to join the 29th? That's a fascinating question because the idea that there was a colored regiment, these, these African-American men were like, wait a minute, I can fight too? So regardless of you know the state, if they were in a general area where they can go and enlist, they traveled there to do it. So yeah, some of these individuals were from Pennsylvania, from Maryland, they came to Connecticut because they had an opportunity to actually be a part of the fight. Did the Army anticipate this rather enthusiastic response? Uh, was Were they overwhelmed by the, just the numbers that came in? Yeah, they were a little overwhelmed. I mean, the idea was that, you know, you would get a certain number of folks in the 29th, but they were well over what they expected. I mean, once they got to just under 1,300 people in the 29th, they said, well, wait a minute, we got to create another regiment. So then they created the, the Connecticut 30th Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment. And so the overflow, they started putting in the 30th. 
what we know of now is that there's somewhere around 1,700 people that joined, attempting to join the 29th, but ultimately ended up in the 29th and or the 30th. You've collected uh, stories of, of some of these soldiers. Did they reveal in those uh, letters, diaries, the, the uh, material that you found uh, why they were so eager to fight? I mean, you've, you've oh, just yeah. touched on it uh, in your answer before, but uh, uh, did, you, did you find that in their stories? Oh, my gosh, goodness, yeah. yeah there, there are a couple of individuals that, well, there, there are only two that I know of that actually wrote narratives of their experience in the 29th. There was an individual by the name of Isaac J. Hill and another individual by the name of Alexander Newton. And so Isaac J. Hill wrote his narrative just after the Civil War in, in 1867, and then Alexander Newton wrote his in, in 1910. And, oh, yeah, it's very clear within their narrative. N- neither of them were born and or raised in Connecticut. They were those that kind of came here when they heard about it. It was very clear that there was a pride in, I need to fight for people that look like me, the, you know, the people, my parents, my sisters and brothers, the people that are being treated a certain way in this country, I, this is an opportunity for me to change how we're viewed. Also, when they were training, they trained at a location today that's called Chris Qualo Park in New Haven. But while they were training in 1864, Frederick Douglass, the famed abolitionist, came there to speak to them, right, to encourage in, them. In New Haven. In New Haven. Mm. And, and his words were, were similar to that perspective. You know, essentially, you're being given this opportunity. It's a heavy burden. Like, if you are looked at as human and you gain citizenship, then so will we. You know, there's this burden, like, being placed on their shoulders. Mm. But that was the perspective. It was like, we're fighting for something broader than just the country. And based on the stories that you've seen, the, uh, the soldiers found this to be a, an inspiring message to move them on. Oh, yeah. It was clear in their, their narratives that they wrote. I don't know that they needed Frederick Douglass's speech. <laughs> like, it was clear that when they came there, they traveled there, that they had life experience that had positioned them to say, this is wrong we've got to do something, and I'm fighting for something much larger than just the country. Were all of the soldiers of uh, African descent in in the 29th, or were there different ethnic backgrounds, others of color? Oh, yeah, yeah. There were different ethnic backgrounds, and um, there were a few Asian individuals in the 29th as well, and there were other backgrounds. It wasn't just African Americans. It was just primarily, you know, people of African descent. The story of the 29th, this idea that they were fighting for something that was such lar- much larger than them, is the most, for me, uh, heartfelt component of it. Both of these guys that I'm talking about, Isaac J. Hill and Al- Alexander Newton, they came from areas where portions of their family were enslaved. While they weren't, there, there were people directly related to them that were, and they were both also treated in ways even though they weren't enslaved, as if they were. For example, mm-hmm. Alexander Newton, um, he was not enslaved, but as he was working, he was born and raised in uh, North Carolina. As he was working, once his employer asked for him to carry a bench to a particular location, and he started to, and then he realized, hey, this is too much. A, a horse should do this. I shouldn't be doing this. He decided not to. And he ends up getting 30 lashes with the whip for that, his back was scarred up and he was out of work for the next two weeks. So regardless of whether he's enslaved or not, the, the sentiment of value relative to color 
was the ultimate challenge and the ultimate issue. And, and, you know, that's what they were really trying to fight against. Who led the 29th? The idea was that people of color, like, that's going to be challenging to lead people of color. Like, their capabilities aren't the same, and they might be, you know, looking at this differently than we are. And, and so Connecticut decided that the leaders of the 29th had to be white individuals. And that aligned with the War Department. The War Department eventually creates a bureau that set the standards for how you create these regiments. And so, yeah, there's uh, Colonel Henry Ward, who uh, was one of the leaders of the 29th, William J. Ross, Major William Ross, John Bishop, another individual that was part of leadership of the 29th. But yeah, it was all white individuals, which in and of itself speaks to a few things, right, about we're fighting for your freedom, but you're not equal. The clarity around that, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're, yeah, we're okay, we're fighting for this thing, but you're not equal to who we are. And, and that was also clearly kind of articulated in these narratives as well. Isaac Hill says that they were promised $315 from the state and $75 from the county and $300 from the U.S. government as like bounty for enlistment. And then while you're in the, the, the regiment, you're going to get a stipend, a, a monthly payment of $15, which would have aligned with what white soldiers were being paid. But he says, we got the money from the state, but we never got the money from the county or the U.S. government. And then when we were given our first monthly payment, it was $7. And we were charged with using that to actually pay for our attire, right? It was very clear that you're not equal Probably they were equal when it came to being sent to the fights. Where (laughs) did they fight? Where did the 29th fight? Yeah, well, they were sent initially to Annapolis. Uh, They were in Virginia. They were sent to South Carolina. I mean, they were in a lot of different places and a lot of different battles. And uh, often they were in battle with other regiments that were all white regiments. And another thing that's Mm. interesting about their plight, uh, as they moved through certain areas like when they when they got to Annapolis Maryland was a border state you know there were enslaved and there were those that weren't enslaved and they didn't leave the union but they also allowed for slavery and they talk about how coming across African Americans in Annapolis that were weary of who they were and didn't treat them well and their enslavers didn't treat them well Isaac J Hill talks about being in battle and Um, an African-American being wounded. And he takes care of him on the battlefield. And, but he has to go back to his station and he props him up and the medics are taking care of all these wounded people and he leaves and he comes back hours later and the guy's still sitting in the same spot in the same position he propped him up and he's alive, but he's still sitting, he wasn't attended to. And his perspective was, you know, being wounded on the battlefield, there is a hierarchy and our color, you know, we weren't treated first, like the white soldiers were treated and then they might get to us as the wounded. So, I mean, they were dealing with a lot in this battle. What was the casualty rate for the 29th? They lost just under 200 men as a part of the conflict, but 144 of them were lost due to disease, right? It it really wasn't within battle. Um, It was just somewhere around 50 that were lost in battle. Uh, But they quickly gained um, respect, I think, because of their bravery. 
there was a quote, I'm sure I will butcher it, which regards to, you know, their desire to fight that Alexander Newton talked about. It was something to the effect that while we weren't trained at West Point, we had like this thing we were fighting towards that was about the heart, which made them, you know, a very worthy foe. I'm talking with John Mills, an independent scholar and the president of the Alex Breen Corporation, which researches uh, the lives of Americans who were enslaved. You'll be speaking uh, at the New Haven Museum, sharing the personal stories of some of the soldiers. You just mentioned a couple of them. Uh, How did you initially learn about the lives of these soldiers? How did you come across this information? Yeah, it's interesting how I came across it. You know, that my work has been one that's come out of, you know, my own experiences as a young man growing up in the 70s and facing racism and bias. The primary thing, kind of colorism and, and, and bias is what I faced and trying to affect that. And eventually, you know, me trying to, like, impact the outside world around unconscious bias kind of brought me to um, the Alex Brand Corporation and using my nonprofit to kind of highlight stories of the enslaved. My intent really to kind of talk about my genealogy, align myself to members in my own genealogy that were a part of these times so that when I tell these stories, people see a personal kind of connection to, oh, it's real. It's not just a story. It's not mythical. This guy's related to it. Then align those stories to individuals of the particular area where I'm telling the story, with this particular city um, telling the story. Align my story to that story. And those things, too, being married, the, the, the concept is if they then marry me to my story, they might marry my story to the story in their area. And now it's not mythical. It's an actual thing. And the hope being that the, the individual then self-reflects, self-interrogates, and maybe they do something different in their lives with regards to biases that they may not even see in their own head, right? And so that's the idea. And so I was doing that work when I ran into an individual by the name of Nicholas Monroe that I I was going to use his story. He was um, from Baltimore. He came to Connecticut as well in the same scenario for the 29th, enlisted, fought, and then he ended up staying here in Connecticut um, and lived the rest of his life here. He he was disabled before he came into the 29th. He was considered in in the census as idiotic, like it's a mental disorder. Um, Then he was wounded and he had like one eye and and then he was kind of exploited here in Connecticut. In West Hartford, he was thrown into these fights with other disabled individuals, and he, so he was like for, for, pri- for, for prize entertainment. Fights. Like it was like an entertainment-based thing, and mm. um, he eventually gets into um, into crime. He starts stealing to make a living, and he's sent to prison. He ends up being at Weathersfield Prison, which is the, the location of the Department of Motor Vehicles in Weathersfield. He dies there in prison. He's buried there at Cove Park, which is where the prison cemetery was at the time, and. There's newspaper articles of the time because there was a conflict with regards to how prisoners were being treated. A guard says he was dug up and his body was sent to Yale because they needed Yale needed bodies for medical research. And so I was trying to tell that story in discovering he was in the 29th. Uh-huh. Right. Well, actually, he was moved into the 30th, but he, he enlisted in the 29th. And that's what got me digging more into, OK, what about these individuals? Of You mentioned how you got connected with genealogy and, and, and your own personal story. Could you elaborate on that and, and talk about how the the Alex Breen Corporation came to be and, and the kind of work that, that you do there? Yeah. You know, again, as I came up, I was raised actually in California, right? And at that time in the 70s, this fight for equality and it was a big thing in my family, right, in my general vicinity. 
the Black Panthers were an influence for the people that were around me and what they said, specifically the things about pride in self, pride in the color of your skin, pride in your features, you know, how your outlook is to who you are and how you present. And I thought that I was kind of, you know, an advocate for that as I grew into adulthood. Now you get into the late 80s, I have my daughter, and I'm in the 90s, and I came to a realization at some point that my perception of myself was that I was of lesser value than white America. And that threw me. When I, when I came to that place to realize that I saw myself in a different light and I saw value in folks that were not, were, 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 were white in, in a different way than myself. And that threw me for a loop. I didn't want that. I didn't want that for my daughter. I didn't know how that happened. How do, I'm come from this family that was so advocating of the opposite and then I'm recognizing in my purview of how I present that I'm actually presenting differently, which made me realize that Unconscious bias is a real thing and it impacts all of us and it has something to do with, I believe, kind of reverberating effects of our nation's kind of progress. And so that took me to a place of trying to impact the outside world, try to get other individuals to do a similar self-reflection. You know, something that you, you look at yourself and you figure out like, am I a part of holding up these tenants that are part of the statistics that we hear about today? Like, you know, the wealth gap and the health gap and the housing gap. And are we a part of that, right? I've been trying for a, a long while, the Alex Brand Corporation is one of the ways that I do that in telling these stories to try to get to that place, to get people to think and self-interrogate, right? Another thing, if you've ever taken a genealogical research class, in those classes they talk about ensuring that as you're researching, that you're checking your own biases, because you might see things that may point in a direction, but your biases are causing you to think it's pointing in a direction, so you have to do daily self-reflection and daily self-interrogation. The way they teach genealogists to think is the same thing that I was coming to the conclusion about of how I think Americans in general should think. That's right? interesting, so I do subscribe to one of those, without mentioning the name, uh, you know, genealogy uh, online uh, systems. And that I've, n I've never heard before. Right. And I've run into some surprising connections is the, the best way I can, I can, you know, describe that. Right. And I don't know how to navigate that yeah. at the moment. Yeah, it's a, it's a very... Uh, Again, yeah, it's a very challenging thing. Again, I, I was kind of seeing it early on as this is something outside of me. Like I'm an African-American and that's not me. When I realized that, no, it's everybody. Like, I mean, if you came up in this country, it's kind of similar to what Jane Elliott would talk about. You know, the, the educator and in the 70s, she did the brown eye, blue eye experiment. Mm -hmm. um, she talks about how, you know, our education system and who we highlight and what our media shows. And it would be incredibly uh, amazing if you were able to come up through our system and not have unconscious biases. So she's like, how could that happen? Regardless of who you are. And, and so when I came to this realization in the 90s, I was like, she's right. An overt racist person is easy to see. The person that is advocating but is not self-interrogating and is really more detrimental to holding up the pillars of these issues, they're harder to see. And that is really, in my mind, where the challenge is. There are some states that are attempting to roll back efforts to teach African-American experience in, in American history. In some places, they even minimize the impact 
that slavery had on people and the legacy that we carry from it right. uh, as a nation. Have you noticed this happening here in Connecticut in, in your work? The circle that I, I walk in and the people that I talk to here in this state, I see Connecticut doing really good things with regards to augmenting what is taught in the schools. But yeah, the challenge, I think, is perspective in, in the conversation that we just had. For example, in the late on the early 2000s, I learned about my second great-grandfather. His name was Ned Mills. He was an enslaved man in Texas. And he was freed on June 19th, 1865 in Texas. And it, my namesake, my name comes from him, and his name is from his enslaver. So my name, Mills, is just a product of my family being enslaved. And we learned about him and my great-grandparents as well, and we found where they were buried. It was on my great-grandmother's death certificate. Hickory Grove Cemetery in, in East Texas. So me and my sister traveled there to see this location, to see for gravesite. And we get there and we realize it's a, it's a whites-only cemetery. And we're like, well, wait, wait a minute. The guest certificate says she's here. But then we saw a lightly driven path on the side of the cemetery that led into the woods. And then we realized. So we walked into the woods. And there in the woods, we found some of our descendants. We never found those individuals, though, right? My, my great-great-grandfather or nor my great-grandparents. We know they're there under tr down trees and shrub and you know, they're there, but we, we don't know where. And that was a sobering experience, right? Like that even in death, they were segregated. Or um, the story of my, uh, my third great grandfather on my mother's side, he was in the Civil War. He was in the Navy in the Civil War. He enlisted in February of 1864, similar to these individuals that we were talking about earlier, in Baltimore, after the Civil War, and he, he passed away, and he was buried in Laurel Cemetery in Baltimore, which in the 1950s was paved over to make a parking lot. So there's like 30,000 African-American bodies under this parking lot. The people he fought beside, the white soldiers that he fought beside, are across town at Loudoun Cemetery, a military cemetery. So we traveled there to just kind of stand in the parking lot, take a picture of where our third great-grandfather is buried. Like, you know, I think the there's a legacy to the people that raised those and raised their ancestors who then become who we are today that reverberates. And when you learn about it, you can see kind of the impacts over time. That is where I think today there's kind of a, a lack of understanding of what the value is in kind of understanding what these stories are kind of understanding the more the broad impact that they, they created and also really getting into detail about what these people really faced and how broad it was. Like I chased down three different lines of my family. All of them led to very common things. Like, but we, we've, we tend to talk to them as if they're like um, exceptionalist stories, but they're not. They're the common story. And I think the lack of an understanding around that, I think kind of drives this we don't need to tell these stories, and then they don't end up in the schools. And um, I think that's a disservice. Are there enough documents and artifacts available to to build a clear picture of the lives of African Americans in Connecticut during uh, the 19th and earlier centuries? There are some fascinating stories that I've been able to find. They just tend to not be stories that we tell. And I, and I think that is because they are not feel-good stories. It's a great thing when we can tell the, the stories of exceptionalism. For many years, it, you know, when I came up in the, in the school systems, you know, there were common individuals we learned about, you know, Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and we might hear about Harriet Tubman, like, like very specific people. Those people that did these grandiose things, they mm. conquered something. They were, 
you know, the exceptionalists. But I see them as the one in the millions, right? They're the one side of the million. But the story of the million kind of gives you a, a broader perspective. And I think in Connecticut, there are a lot of stories that are just not told about that other side of the equation. Now, to your question, I mean, I, I don't think we, we can't get to everyone because these people weren't considered people, right? You, you know, they didn't kind of gain citizenship until the 14th Amendment. Prior to that, there was no requirement to document a lot about them. So there's a challenge there. But when there's an alignment to an enslaver and the enslaver chose to document something about them, we can then pull stories together. Where can people go to learn more about some of these stories? Is the um, information that uh, the Breen Corporation uh, compiling something people can access? Absolutely. Like our work and the intent of our work is to do two things. One is kind of tell these stories from the perspective of a descendant and a perspective of the enslaved and then um, impact the community where these people lived by installing them to be a part of that community change street names, build murals about these broader stories. So that's the work that we do. And we've got a lot of projects going on, a lot of great stuff. You can go to alexbrianne.org and on the site, all of the stories and all of our projects are all listed. John Mills is an independent scholar and president of the Alex Brianne Corporation, a Connecticut-based nonprofit group researching lives of Americans who were enslaved. Thank you so much for spending some time with us and really enlightening us on some of the stories that we just have not heard about. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thank you for the time.